This is Podco Media Networks. It's the Demystifying Data Podcast with Chris Clegg, where we deconstruct the tools and techniques marketers need to make data more actionable. Here's Chris. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Demystifying Data. I'm your host, Chris Clegg, and we're going to continue this episode with the idea of collecting data and how you do that. What are the logistics and what's going to give you good data? You know, we spend a lot of time, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, we spent a lot of time talking about the structure or the conceptual framework around which you're gathering data and how that guides your analysis and reporting techniques. And if you've been a listener to the podcast, you've probably received a lot of that kind of information through our past discussions. But we haven't spent enough time talking about the logistics of getting good data. And good data really matters. It's going to be the source of everything that is uh, insightful and provides value. Because ultimately, this is about making better decisions as business professionals and getting the information we need to make those decisions. In the previous episode, we talked about how that information can be either qualitative or quantitative. And from a qualitative position, information that's qualitative is information that is about discovery. It's about understanding what we don't know. It's the range of thoughts and perspectives and approaches and problem solving that exists out in the world that we don't have any clue about. We may have some assumptions, but we are likely not the people that we're trying to better understand. Therefore, we can't really know where they're coming from. And before we can start to quantify things in a way that allows us to understand scope and magnitude, we got to really understand what those things are. And getting qualitative data is a discovery process to get that information. And that's what we covered in the last episode. But once we have that, or if we really know what we're talking about to begin with, then you'll find the nature of the decisions you're needing to make and the data or information that's going to help you make better decisions is going to be quantitative or it's going to be about validation. It's going to be about validation, order of magnitude, key drivers, what's the cause and effect between two things and and how can that be quantified in a way that lets me understand its significance and its magnitude in the context of the decisions I'm trying to make. And that's quantitative data. And quantitative data is about hard numbers on predefined variables that we can use to apply statistical analysis techniques to understand significant variation between groupings. And when we have significant variation between groupings, and those groupings are strategic in the sense that they're actionable for us, then we're able to make better decisions. We're able to make decisions with confidence that one direction is going to have this outcome versus another direction having that outcome. And it's quantitative data that gives that to us. And there's a lot of different ways to get access to quantitative data. And the first thing I'm going to mention is secondary sources. This was the same thing that we talked about when it came to the qualitative side. And secondary sources they are secondary data in general is a phrase used to reference data that was collected for some other purpose. But if we can get our hands on it, we can use it for our purposes. And it's just as valid for our purposes as it is for the purposes in which it was collected. And uh, secondary data is fantastic because it already exists. So therefore, it's very easy and usually a lot faster to get access to because otherwise a uh, Quant data can take weeks or months to get access to. And then the other thing about secondary data that is often awesome is that it's cheap. 
because it's already been collected, we can get our hands on it for a relatively low price or uh, for free. So a great source of the way the world works is going to come from the U.S. Census and a lot of information around the dynamics around how we organize ourselves and what people do and where they go. Census is a great source of free information around that. There's also a huge industry of syndicated reports and secondary data that you can get from Websites like marketresearch.com, Portma has syndicated resources that we provide. There's all kinds of different places to get syndicated data. Many cases, you can look at the World Bank, you can look at economic forums, you can look at associations, non-government organizations. All of these organizations have data in-house they've collected to support those that are on a similar mission that they are on. And that's going to oftentimes be a resource for you for the purposes you're trying to tackle. And sometimes it's as simple as a web search to get at that information. When you're in a quantitative world and you're trying to get, it's it's true for qualitative as well, when you're looking and getting ready to embark on a secondary process, and really it's helpful to start with what I call an information hit list. And it's sitting down and it's thinking about what is the information you need And uh, what's the specific format or the specific nature of the question you're trying to answer that's going to give you that information? So you don't want to write down something like, I want to better understand seasonal flavor for beer. That's not a good hit list item when you're doing a secondary project. But you may say, I'm looking for sales volume of flavored beer in North America and how that varies by season. I'm testing the assumption that the fall will have a spike in flavored beer sales. And I want to know if that's true. That's a a very specific question. And and you can start to see probably when you ask it that way, how you're starting to define the very process of secondary research and how you're going to try and find that information. But when that's not the way you got it, that's when, when secondary research isn't the source for you, you're not going to have access to it, or you can't find something or it doesn't otherwise exist, or maybe what you need information about is is specific enough or special enough or specialized enough that you've got to go out and create it yourself. So primary research is going to be your answer and you got to get data from people in a way that no one else has collected before. And therefore um, you have a few tools at your disposal. One of those tools is going to be an intercept survey. It's going to be asking people questions in person. So when they are having the experience you want to understand, or they are at a place that defines them as a particular type of person and therefore relevant to a person you want to talk to, an intercept survey is oftentimes a great tool for that. Intercept surveys should be very brief. And by brief, I mean, gosh, a minute is a really easy way to get it done. If you can ask a consumer for a minute of their time, then you're going to find it fairly easy to get their input. And a minute is going to loosely translate into probably four to six questions. It seems like not very many, but that's probably what you're talking about with a minute. It's about four to six questions. And if you're engaging them around an event or an experience, it's usually helpful to ask them the questions after they've had the experience you're trying to measure. And there's lots of different ways that you can execute intercept surveys. And uh, we have an app here at Portma. You can type Portma into uh, the iOS store and the Apple store, and and you'll see that app. And and that's got tools to do that. But there's a lot of other ways you can collect intercept surveys. You can do it with pencil and paper. 
as well. But you want to be very short. And typically, you're trying to get a sense of, you know, let me validate that you're the kind of person I want to be talking to. Let me get a sense of your past history around what I'm trying to measure. And let me get a sense of your future intention around what I'm trying to measure. And that tends to be the genre of types of questions that are going to be relevant for a lot of types of decision-making. Now, obviously, the specifics is where the magic is, and, and that's something that is going to be very relevant to what specific questions you're asking yourself. But, you know, it's important when you think, if we're focused on logistics of data collection and the logistics around intercept surveys, one of the things I see people fail at the most is a lack of consistency in how questions are being asked. Because that consistency is really everything. You know, if I'm going to ask somebody a particular question about their brand experience, like, uh, have you had pizza in the last 30 days? I want to make sure that everybody is being asked that question exactly the same way. I don't want there to be any variation based on who the interviewer is on how they're asking that question. And so if the question is, have you had pizza in the past 30 days? It's got to be asked exactly that way. And it's got to be reported exactly the same way based on all the answers. Uh, Yes, no may be the most appropriate in this example. And if you don't script it and you don't have it written down and you don't train the people doing the interviews to ask the question in exactly the same way of everybody that they engage, then you're going to get some ad-libbing and you're going to get the whole telephone game will start to kick in. And people will start to say, yeah, they'll start to ask the question like, have you fed your family pizza in the last 30 days? Or have you had pizza this month? Have you had pizza in the past week? Or have you ever eaten pizza? You'll get all these subtle variations that seem subtle, but in practice, they're really measuring different things. And so as you come back and you're sitting down with your data set of 300 interviews, 400 interviews, and they're all measuring something slightly different, and you don't know which is which, you just know you have a question about pizza, that's going to be the source of error in your data. And it's going to be the reason why you don't see significant variation when you otherwise would have. So there's a lot of other tricks to the trade, but that's one that is really critical. You're going to be wasting your time if you're not finding a way to standardize the way people are asking questions or the way people are reading questions. You need it to be in a very specific way. There are other tricks to it. So you don't want to ask somebody their age, but you can ask them their year of birth. So an older person may be a little insulted if you ask their age, but they'll proudly tell you the year they were born. I mean, there's little things like that that are pretty straightforward that kind of make it easier, but you'll pick that up over time or you'll you'll ask a group like Portmata to help you out. And, and we've done it so long, we understand the ins and outs. Another popular way of collecting data, and it's so great that we have it today because 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was nowhere near a resource for us, but it's this idea of online data collection. We can send an email invitation to a web survey and we can ask people questions online and record their answers. And that's an awesome process. That is so cost-effective and so much better than the mail surveys we had in the the late 90s. So it's really a solid tool and a great way to do it. So some best practices around getting feedback via a web survey, those email invitations, don't underestimate uh, what you're doing there. You You want to have it coming from somebody that the respondent would recognize in an ideal world. It should be coming from a person. You want to highlight in the subject line that it's a survey request, but also where you got their information. So they know it's not spam, it's relevant. You can only be sending email invitations to people that expect it and that have otherwise given you permission to do so. If you don't do that, you're just pissing people off and wasting your money. So you're going to be... 
can spam compliant anyways. And making sure you have in the subject line something that they're going to recognize and identify with and a short subject line, a subject line that's not going to be so long, it runs off of their browser window and they can't read it. And then you're going to open up the email and they're going to see above the fold a link. They're going to see a friendly greeting. They're going to be assured that their information is going to be respected. It's going to be anchored to what it's all about in a way that's relevant for them. And they're going to click on that link and they're going to head through to the survey. And the survey is going to be a match for what they expected when they clicked on the link in the email. And they're going to answer that survey and give you their precious feedback about what's happening. And when that process is not working, I mean, well, first of all, metrics, you should expect your delivery rate. When you're sending an email to a clean list, you should expect delivery rates to be around 95% or better. If your bounce back or undeliverable is greater than 5%, certainly greater than 10%, then there's something going on with how those emails were collected. They could be stale. They could have been collected without the intention being totally clear. So if you're struggling with something greater than 10% is an undeliverable rate, then you want to check those things out. Then you got your open rate. So what's the percent of people that are opening the email and looking at it? And open rate percentages can be deceiving a little bit if you have a tracking system in place because some mail readers will automatically open an email and you'll get the message it was auto-opened or that it was opened when it was actually auto-read with a preview. And that's not necessarily indicative of what's happening. But you want your open rates to be north of 30% if you're on target. And if your open rates are lower than 30%, certainly lower than 25%, then you probably need to test different subject lines. You need to make sure that that subject line is short, that it's expressing a relevant call to action that has a clear value proposition for the person who you're asking to give you feedback from and that it's coming from a person that they recognize. Those are things that will help drive greater open rates. And then you've got your click-through rate. And your click-through rate, it should be also in that neighborhood of 30%. I've seen click-through rates as high as 60% because if your subject line is really on target and it's a focused group that you're sending the email to that you've got in a way and permission to send to, then they've pre-screened themselves as being engaged a little bit by opening. And so you should see slightly higher numbers on the click-through. But if your copy is too long or if it's confusing or if you're not very clear and precise and on point, if the call to action isn't above the fold, whatever their email reader is, those are all things that will detract from your click-through rate. And if you can't provide a value proposition that's going to give them a reason to offer up six to 10 minutes of their time to answer the survey, if you can't do that abstractly, you got to buy it. You got to offer them an incentive. And sometimes incentives are appropriate with every respondent get something. And sometimes incentives can work with a drawing for a chance to win something. We find that a drawing for a chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card, it'll double our response rates. And more than $50 actually doesn't work better because I think people start to not believe us. They start to believe that we're not, it's a scam of some sort. But for some reason, that $50 mark, that seems attainable. And when we give people the chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card, we see a good impact on response rate. So they click through, and then when they're answering the survey, um, you really should have answer rates north of 80%. If you've got more than 80% uh, bailing out of your survey, then your survey design, something you've done is problematic for them. And it usually has to do with the expectations you set in the email. So when you're sending them an invitation, you're setting expectations around what the experience is going to be if they click on that link. And they better have that experience that you suggested they would have. And so if the survey is longer than they expected, if it's 
troublesome in a way they didn't expect, even if the creative, if the color scheme or the type of language used is different than what you use to engage them in the email, that's going to be a reason why things fall apart. And so when you're doing an online survey, when you're sending an email invitation to a web survey, let's say you've got 5,000 people that you've got permission to send to, and you want to send to all of them, you want to start with what we call a soft launch, which means you send to maybe 10% of them, maybe 500 people. And you're looking to see, you know, what is my delivery rate? What is my open rate? What's my click-through rate? What's my completion rate? And you're looking to see what those averages are. And then you extrapolate that across the 4,500 email addresses that you haven't yet sent to. And you're able to take a step back and say, you know, if these were the rates, if I got these numbers, these open click-through and completion rates for my whole list, would that give me the number of responses I need to be successful? And if the answer is no, then you got to keep testing because you don't want to burn your list before you know it's going to generate the return that you're, you're looking for. And if the answer is yes, if those numbers work out in a way that gets you the kind of data that you need or the amount of data that you need to, to do the analysis correctly, then, um, then go for it. Open the floodgates and do a hard rollout and get that data because um, online data collection is an awesome resource for us. So there you have it. There's a couple types of quantitative data collection techniques. There's the secondary sources, there's uh, intercept surveys, and there's online email to web surveys. Those are the most common and the ones that uh, we spend most of our time managing projects around here at Portma. And I hope this helps you. I hope this gives you some kind of game plan or roadmap to follow to get some data. And if it doesn't work out for you, you're welcome to give us a call. We're happy to share our experiences. And, and then we'd certainly love to manage a project for you if that was appropriate. So thanks so much for tuning in. I'm going to ask you to be a subscriber. If you're not, please go ahead and, and subscribe to the podcast. You can search Demystifying Data anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And, uh, you know, I hope this has given you some value. I hope you're getting some, some information that's helping you with your own data practices. And uh, yes, we definitely hope you are having a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care. Bye-bye. Tune in next time as Chris Clegg continues demystifying data. Meantime, head over to demystifyingdata.co to learn more.